And God truly does speak to us. Welcome to the Lord's house. And in a minute, we're going to take a look at Acts chapter 9. If you have a smart device, you can open it up to the Bible app and choose live event. It'll take you right to Acts chapter 9 to the scriptures and even opportunity for you to communicate back to us about this service or prayer requests that you might have. Or you can also pick up your Bible. We're going to get to that in a moment. But I do believe that God speaks to us sometimes in his word, always in his word. But uh, sometimes by prompting, and as I sat there and, and uh, participated in worship this morning, I just thought, I need to call these people out, these vocalists and instrumentalists who serve us every, every week. Didn't they do a great job today? And We are blessed with some incredible talent. And, and in fact, uh, Tim Ryman, who, who leads uh, our music ministry, actually had people rat out their friends, people who have musical instrumental ability or vocal ability and communicated to them, and he's got a whole core of new people. If that includes you, if you know somebody or you have that kind of talent, you know, we'd like to hear from you. And, and even if it's not polished yet, it, it can grow to be that. And we welcome your involvement as well because it's truly a blessing to, to share. It's also a blessing to all of us who receive. Let's pray for our message. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all the assembled hearts prove acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I truly pray that. Certainly I've prepared a message. I have things I want to say that I believe are, are based on the scripture today. But I also believe that God will speak to you in, in ways that I don't anticipate. That uh, there will be promptings and there will be by his spirit encouragement and even challenge on your heart that maybe I didn't even intend because that's the way God works. That's the way he works through his word. The Bible says it always accomplishes the purpose for which he sends it. It never returns to him void. It, it uh, changes things. It's a powerful thing. It's not just truth. It's also powerful in our life. And so I pray that you are blessed. When we talk about you're going the wrong way, the question arises, how do I know? I'm going this way because I believe it's the right way. If it wasn't the right way in my mind, I would certainly be going a different way. No one wants to go the wrong way. So how do I know? Well, I think you know by perspective, you know. And uh, there are a couple of ways in which perspective can be defined. The appearance to the eye of objects in respect to their relative distance and position. You know, you step back, you gain a different perspective. You know, you view it from a distance, and so you can, you can see it better that way. That's true also socially. That's true in relationships. You know, when you step back from somebody else's struggle, you can often see what they cannot see. You know, there's the old phrase, they can't see the forest for all the trees. You know, they're surrounded by all their problems they can't see as clearly as somebody else can. That's why we often seek the counsel of others, sometimes our friends, even professionals, because they can see things more clearly. For instance, it's much easier for me to see Carol's problems than it is for Carol to see her own problems, and I try to help her out with that occasionally. And Conversely, she sees my issues better than I see my issues, and she's apt to point them out, you know. So, you know, from a distance, you know, it's more, uh, it, it's easier to see somebody else's issues. There's also uh, a, a perspective that comes to a point of view. The capacity to view things in their true value or relative importance. You know, after you invest yourself in a, in a certain path, a, a certain trajectory, uh, after a while you can say, wow, this isn't going where I wanted it to go. 
the problem is with that is that uh, you will be further down the road and, and you have wasted some time, some energy, maybe some resources. So learning in retrospect by looking back and seeing how you might have done things differently is a bit frustrating. But it is true at the end of your journey, you can see where you might have done things better. In fact, one of the great innovators of our time and of our generation, one of the truly uh, great minds of of our time just recently passed, uh, Steve Jobs, um, who was uh, incredible in, in his gift with Apple and all the Apple products that we've enjoyed. And uh, he was diagnosed with cancer uh, a number of years ago. He had no end to his financial resources, no end to his ability to contract for medical attention. And, and for a while he won that fight, but eventually it, it took his life. And he knew it was headed that way. And, and here's how he reflected on that. Remembering that I'll be dead soon, seems a bit morbid, but you know, he was a man who constantly learned even as he was dying. Remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. Because almost everything, all external expectations, what other, think, what other people think of you, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or even failure, these things just fall away in the face of death leaving only what is truly important. You know, at the end of our life, we'll know if we were headed the wrong way, if we don't end up where we want to end up, if we're not satisfied with our life. But how might we find out before then? Thus, you know, our text. Thus, you know, the instruction today as, as the Lord came into Saul, who became the Apostle Paul's life, and, you know, did an intervention, really, and, and a course correction in his life. Now, now let me just fast forward a bit and, and take you to uh, a time later in life after Paul's course had been corrected and what he had to say about it because he had no regrets. He was so thankful that the Lord intervened. And in a reflective moment as he wrote a letter to the church at Philippi, this is how he reflected on the course that he was following versus the course that God provided. It's recorded in chapter 3 of his letter to the church at Philippi. He said, though I myself have reason for such confidence, meaning boasting in all the things that I do as a religious person, you know, I have a lot of things to boast about. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in what they've achieved, believe me, I can put you to shame. I was circumcised on the eighth day. That's exactly the way the Bible required it for Jewish people. My folks did it right. As of the people of Israel, I was of a faithful tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Man, I was doing everything according to Hoyle. In regard to the law, <laughs> I didn't just know the law. I taught the law. I was a Pharisee. As for zeal, I wasn't just passionate about God with my opinion. I actually got engaged. I persecuted those who were bringing down the Jewish faith, Christians. I persecuted the church. And as for righteousness based on what God expected of us, you couldn't find anything wrong with me. I was faultless. But then God intervened. God put him on a different path. He said, but what I used to brag about, whatever things I considered gain, I now consider a loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Man, Jesus changed everything for this guy. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. By comparison, nothing compares. For whose sake I gladly sacrifice and lay aside everything that I used to brag about. 
I consider them even garbage, even rubbish. Won't even talk about them. Because I now have Christ. And I'm found in him. And so my perfection, my righteousness is not what I do by keeping things correctly. What comes from the law. But I have righteousness which is received through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So Paul understood, he came to understand because the Lord intervened, that, that pleasing God is not so much a matter of, of doing what you do in order to receive his favor. It's doing what you do because you already have his favor. Because God sent Jesus Christ to die for you. Sacrificed himself for you. And because he's already made me perfect and he's given me this great gift of a relationship with him and also eternal life, I want to live my life differently. You know, Paul's perspective had changed. I like to say that, that God draws straight with a crooked line. Now, certainly, the quickest way from point A to point B is a straight line. And we would all prefer that we walk a straight line, that we don't have to wander around and, and experience a lot of frustration, a lot of wasted time, a lot of wasted effort. But we just know what God wants and we head there. But often in our sinful human nature, that just isn't possible. You know, all the convoluted ways in which we live our life are almost essential, almost necessary for God to discipline and chasten us. You know, as steel is forged in a fire and becomes stronger, so also is faith often forged by trial and by difficulty. Would to God that you could avoid it, but often through the experience of difficulty, as Paul, you know, was chastened by God, uh, you reflect and you change and you become what God would have you be. You are forced to exercise faith. Even Helen Keller, uh, the, the, the great leader of a, of a previous generation who was, uh, of course, blind from childhood. Uh, uh, something happened early in her childhood, a disease that caused her to be blind. And, and uh, you know, she became a great leader. Uh, she understood that that was not what she thought at first, a curse on her life, but rather a means by which God favored her with, with blessing. She said, in retrospect, character cannot be developed in ease and quiet. Only through experience of trial and suffering can the soul be strengthened, ambition inspired, and success achieved. I, I see this in young people, and my heart goes out to any young person that I see struggle, whether it be job loss or whether it be um, a stillbirth or uh, inability to get pregnant or uh, relational struggles, you know, whatever it might be, my heart always goes out to them. But I also realize that this is a means by which God is forging them if they respond in faithfulness, if they turn to the Lord. Uh, and I always wonder when I see that in a, in a person, wonder what God is preparing for them to accomplish through this difficult time. There's an old story told about James Garfield, who was the 20th president of the United States. He was the second president after Abraham Lincoln to be assassinated while in office. Uh, before that, he was a congressman for some time. And before he was a congressman, he was actually president of a university in Ohio. And a father one time came to him and, and uh, said, It seems to me that it's a great waste of time and a great waste of money for you to spend four years ed educating my child. It, it seems that you could find a way to do it in less time and in less expense. To which Garfield, who was president of the university at the time, said, Oh, certainly, we, we could do that. It depends on what you want your son to be. 
When God grows an oak tree, he takes 100 years. When he grows a squash, he takes six months, you know. You know, there is time required, you know, for something to be seasoned properly. And so God does draw straight with a crooked line. Even the, the, the contortions of our life are often necessary and used by God to bring us to a place that he wants us to be. Well, let's pick up our text. Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. The story of a man named Saul, his Jewish name, who eventually became the Apostle Paul. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Still breathing out threats. We first meet him earlier in this book when he is holding the coats of those who are stoning Stephen, you know, for standing up for Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Saul and the other Jewish people thought that was, uh, that Jesus was a destruction of the Jewish faith and he could not be the Messiah because the Messiah would be strong and, and like David, a king, and Jesus apparently was crucified and, and he couldn't be our Messiah. And so he was glad to put him to death. He was not regretting that decision. He still had that. And so he said, I'm going to do even more. He went to the high priest and he asked him for letters of support and, and authority so that he could go to the synagogues in Damascus. So that if he found any other Jewish people there who belonged to the way... That's what they called Christians, because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If he found any belonging to followers of Jesus, whether men or women, he would uh, put them in chains, and he would bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He was knocked from his horse, and he fell to the ground. And he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He said, who are you, Lord? Before God blinded Saul on the road to Damascus, Saul was blinded by his own zeal and his own passion. Now, I don't, I don't care what endeavor that you're involved with, whatever your business, whatever your goal, whatever you pour yourself into, whatever is a priority in your life, I guarantee you that right now somebody might come to mind who is working with you on that cause that you, worst, that you wish were working for your opponent. You know, <laughs> you know they, they, they have some passion, but their passion is misguided, and, and they're actually creating more work for you than they are good. Their misguided zeal is doing more harm than help. Take, for example, uh, what just made the news, Pastor uh, Fred Phelps, who died this past week. Uh, he was from Topeka, Kansas, and he was the senior pastor of Westboro Baptist Church. You know the church? You know they show up at every military uh, uh, death, and, and they protest and say, this is God's judgment on America. I'm glad that this soldier died, you know, and and uh, now we have the freedom riders on motorcycles that form shields between these people. He's a Christian pastor, you know, and his church is a Christian church. Aren't you proud of them? You know, aren't you proud that they're Christian like you're Christian? Or does it embarrass you a little bit? You know, they're so zealous for their cause, you know. They condemn the moral issues of our day and they do it in the most um, candid and, and um, offensive way. Now, that's an extreme case of, of, of people... Uh, who identify with the faith who are an embarrassment really to the greater church. But I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that 
the overall opinion of non-Christians and, and really even Christians is that I know more what Christians are opposed to than I know what Christians stand for. Kind of a sad commentary on the Christian faith in our time that we are identified as people who are against this and that and this moral abuse. Now, I'm not suggesting that there aren't rights and wrongs. And I know that when we abide in the right, our way is prospered and uh, as iron sharpens iron. So we want to be a blessing to other people and to other Christians. But the Bible says, speak the truth in love. You know, truth without love is never heard. Love without truth isn't all that helpful. You know, these two have to come hand in hand. Now, I've preached quite a few sermons in my time, and I've listened to uh, quite a few sermons in my time, and, and most of them are like last week's meal. You don't remember what you ate on Tuesday last week, do you? You might not remember what I preached two weeks ago, do you? But that meal sustained you for a time, and probably that sermon sustained you for a time. It just isn't memorable. But nevertheless, it's a part of your ongoing growth and faith. Uh, there are sermons, though, that do stand out, and, and, uh, and I do recall, and they have been kind of a, a watershed for me, an, an important insight that, that has changed my thinking. Uh, Pastor Dion, who's leading our music today, preached a sermon about that in the winning series when he was talking about laws of attraction. Remember, we talked about, you know, how to, how to be attractive, how to have money, how to have a long life, all those cutouts we had up here. And when he preached on attraction, I was sitting right over there, and uh, I remember uh, he did it on the basis of, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Against these, no one has any complaint. Against these, God has no limitation. You can't have too much of that in your faith. Now remember him saying, you know, we as Christians often lead with our doctrine. This is what we believe, this is what we reject. When in fact, if you analyze the life of Jesus, it was more... Uh, you know, this is who he is. This is God's compassion and love for people. Now, he has expectations for us, but not to make sure that we walk the line, but because he wants what's best for us. But first, he leads with compassion. First, he leads with love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. A couple of weeks ago, I received a letter from, from Jeff Perry. Uh, Jeff is the pastor at Family Church down the valley. You know the church? They do, they do a lot of good in our city and even beyond our city in the region. You know, they go in after disasters. In fact, we go in with them now. We cooperate with them. And, and they do a lot of relief work and, and just an incredible ministry. And uh, he wrote me because uh, he came across a letter I wrote to him, a, a note I sent to him at the death of his father. And uh, he was putting some things away and he saw my note again. And he says, hey, I just wanted to tell you how much that note meant to me. And, and you took the time to do that. And I just want to thank Thank you for that, and I, I just want you to know how much I thank God for St. John Congregation and all that you guys are doing for the cause of the gospel. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? You know? Isn't that the way Christian pastors... No, I'm sure Jeff and I don't see eye to eye on everything. But, you know, really when we talk about other churches, do we always have to point out what's wrong with that church, what's wrong with that pastor, what's wrong with that ministry, what's wrong with that denomination? Or shouldn't we rejoice that they're preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified? People are going to be saved. That's what the Christian church ought to be known for. Now again, I'm not saying compromise. I'm not saying least common denominator. I'm not saying that. 
Stand for the truth, you know, sharpen each other. But, but when you have a relationship that's based on love, then you trust what somebody else has to say. And you want to know what they have to say. You know, uh, Paul was very zealous, you know, for, for what he was doing. But well-meaning is not good enough. You know, God said, why are you persecuting me? And the question that Paul asked of him is really telling. He said, who are you, Lord? He knew it was the Lord, but he said, man, I thought I knew you. Maybe I don't know you as well as I thought I knew you. I thought you'd be proud of what I'm doing. I thought thought you'd come alongside. I thought you'd give me special power, you know, to beat these Christians into submission who are destroying the faith. It's not easy doing what I'm doing. I'm sacrificing a great deal here. You know, I'm not very popular for what I'm doing. I know you, but I, I guess I really don't know you. Who are you, Lord? And the Lord answered him as we read on in the text. I am Jesus. I am the Messiah. I am the Savior. The one whom you are persecuting. The one that you have rejected. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground and when he opened his eyes he could see nothing. He was blinded. So they led him by the hand into Damascus, the city where he was going to arrest Christians. For three days he was blind. Isn't that interesting? For three days. And then he was given new life. For three days. Noah was in the belly of the well. For three days Jesus was in the grave. For three days, you know, Paul was forced in his blindness to meditate on his life. And during those three days he did not eat or drink anything. Paul had bumped into a brick wall. You know, whenever you reach a dead end it requires course correction. You can't proceed any further. Your journey has been halted. You are going the wrong way. God did not immediately direct Paul in a different path. He needed to think about the path he was on. He needed to just stop and listen. How how many times in a conversation with your spouse or, or with a colleague at work, before they are even finished speaking, you either interrupt them or have in your mind what you're going to say without even listening. It's just human nature to do that. I, I love Psalm 46. It's a, it's a well-known psalm. At least parts of it are well-known by all of us. It says, though the earth, you know, shake and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though, though hillsides slide and destroy homes as they have in Washington, you know, though the world seems out of order, though your life seems out of order, yet there is a river whose streams make glad the city of our God, the holy dwelling place of the Lord most high, Psalm 46. You know, in other words, God is still in heaven, even though things on earth seem out of order. And then towards the end he says, so be still. God is in control. Be still. Be quiet. And know that I am God. And I will be exalted in all the earth. You cannot thwart my purpose. You cannot thwart my way by forcing your way. Would to God that we were doing what God is blessing rather than asking God to bless what we are doing. Huge difference. Who are you, Lord? Dead ends always require a course correction. Now, it is true that God does not punish Christians who do wrong. 
Jesus Christ on the cross paid for all of my sins. He did not pay for 90% of my sins, and I have to pay for 10. He did not pay for 95. He did not pay for 99. He did not leave a percentage for me to pay. Paid for all of it, 100%. And like Paul said, you know, most gladly I will boast in my righteousness that comes by grace through faith in him, not by me doing any good. So he does not punish me. The punishment was, was placed on, on Christ on the cross. He died for all of my sins. He does, however, frustrate me. He does, however, discipline me. And if you've ever been a parent or if you can recall ever being a child, you've experienced discipline. If somebody loves you, you've experienced discipline. Because they just don't want you to, to watch you walk down a self-destructive path. And so they're going to intervene. They're going to step in. They're going to put you in timeout. Uh, you know, they may even practice corporal punishment. You know... Corporal discipline, you know, not, not making you pay, but changing your direction. In fact, the Bible makes this distinction in, First Corinthians, in Hebrews chapter 12. Have you forgotten the exhortation from the Old Testament that says, Children, do not regard the discipline of the Lord lightly. And don't be discouraged when he corrects you. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He corrects the course Every, every child he receives. He said, you had earthly parents and they disciplined you as seemed best to them. We have a heavenly father who will discipline us with perfection. Now, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. You know, I don't, I don't welcome the discipline of God. I, I don't want him to frustrate me. But yet those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruits of righteousness. And so bring it, God. You know, if, if I need discipline, if I need course correction, you know, I, I desire you to do that. Dead ends always lead to course correction. Frustration should cause you to say, why me, Lord? Not because what you're doing deserves punishment, but because maybe what you're doing requires a course correction. If, if things are not going your way, if you don't feel... Uh, uh, God's favor in your, act, in your activity, even if you believe you're doing it for him, if it doesn't seem comfortable to you, you should question, is that what God would have me do? And Paul was left for three days to stew about it. And for three days the Lord spoke to him as, as he spoke to the Lord. Let's continue on with uh, verse 10. Another guy enters the scene. Now in Damascus, where Paul was sent um, to arrest Christians and where Paul was now sitting in total darkness praying... There was another Christian there named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision and said, Ananias. And he said, yes, Lord. The Lord told him, I want you to go to the house of Judas. You know the guy. He goes to your synagogue. You know where he lives on the street called Straight. And ask for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him and restore his sight. God telling Ananias this. Lord Ananias says, I'm not sure that you know this guy, but I know this guy by reputation. I have heard many reports about this guy, Saul, and all the harm that he's doing. He's here to arrest people. You know, is this really what you want? He has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. The Lord said, no, that's exactly what I want, Ananias. Don't you like the way I read? My wife hates it. You know, I jump around, paraphrase. Come on, Steve, stay with the text. Uh, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and put their kings and, uh, 
and to their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Now, courage without insight, you know, passion without truth is dangerous as we saw in, uh, in Saul. He was teaching a way of life as though it was the faith. Rather than a relationship that leads to a way of life. He was teaching behavior that pleases God rather than the love of God that leads to behavior. And, and that passion was so destructive. Do this, don't do that. This is what God requires. This is what he had made faithfulness to God. He made it a law of do's and don'ts. Courage without the insight, without the true knowledge of the gospel that God loves you and, and he wants what's best for you. You know, therefore, you want to know what he wants because I know that that is uh, his will and, and this is the means by which he will bless. Courage without insight is dangerous, as it was found in Paul. But maybe you identify more with Ananias because insight without courage is useless. You know, he had the truth, but he lacked the courage. He said, really, Lord, you, you want me to go and speak to Saul? I, I know a little bit about Saul, Lord. Do you, do you know about this guy? Do you know who he is? And do you know all the harm that he has done? Do you know people are dead because of him? Do you know other people are in prison because of him? You want me to go and speak to him? Why don't you just punch his ticket, Lord? You know, why don't you take him out of this place? What are you willing to risk for Christ, Ananias? Do you trust me? Do you trust me that you can be vulnerable and you can be transparent even to a potential enemy of the cross? Are you willing to stand up for me? Are you willing to reflect my love even to those who are antagonistic towards me, Ananias? It's interesting. God isn't only doing something in Saul's life. He's doing something to a relatively timid, play-it-safe kind of guy named Ananias. And uh, I thought about that, you know, because uh, some, of, some of you got young guys, you boys that are here, and uh, some teenagers, it's, it's not cool sometimes to be identified with the Christian faith. You know, it's, it's you know kind of keep that to myself that I go to Sunday school, you know, or I go to church. You know, most of my friends don't, and it's kind of embarrassing to, yeah, yeah, I believe in Jesus, you know, and, and as, as a kid and as a young man, I, I kind of was in your camp. I, I felt some of that, and, and I came across a, a hymn that really whacked me between the eyes, kind of my road to Damascus kind of experience. Uh, it, it was called Jesus and Shall It Ever Be, and, and as I sang that hymn, it was in the Lutheran hymnal that I grew up with, it was 345, and some things make an impression. You know, I, I still remember that song, and when I sang it, man, I was so convicted. I said, you know, I, I don't care what other people believe. I'm going to stand up and be identified with Christ. And Ananias had to come to that place. The song says, Jesus, and shall it ever be? A mortal man ashamed of thee? Ashamed of thee? Whom angels praise, whose glory shine through endless days. Ashamed of Jesus, sooner far, let evening blush to own a star. He sheds the beams of light divine on this benighted soul of mine. Ashamed of Jesus, that dear friend, on whom my hopes of heaven depend? No, when I blush, be this my shame, that I no more revere his name. Ashamed of Jesus, yes you may, when you've no guilt to wash away, no tear to wipe, no joy to crave, no fear to quell, no soul to save. Till then, nor is my boasting vain, till then I boast a Savior slain. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm proud to be a Christian. 
I know God loves me and I know he's got all kinds of blessings for me and, and he wants them for you. And oh, may this my portion be that Christ is not ashamed of me. Ananias, I've got a job for you to do. Are you man enough? And are you willing enough to do it? Well, let's continue with the conclusion of our story from uh, Acts chapter 9 beginning at verse 17. So Ananias did go to the house and he entered there and he did what God asked him. He placed hands on Saul and he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming uh, sent me so that you may see again and that you may be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. And he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. You know, I know this about vessels, about bowls, you know, about cups, about uh, uh, tubs and things that contain and hold. That before they can be filled up, they must be emptied. It's true of people too. Uh, As I mentioned, there are some sermons that stick with me. Pastor Walt Rosine was pastor here in the 1950s. He was still attending here when I first became pastor here 25 years ago. And, and uh, he preached a sermon one time uh, uh, when I was pastor here. Uh, he has since moved to Wisconsin where he takes care of other family members. But I remember he said, God can fill every heart except a heart that's already full of itself. You know, if you're already full of yourself, then you have no room to listen to the Lord. So I think our posture has to be willingness to, to listen we have to be willing to say, God, what would you have me do, not bless what I'm doing? You know, be able to listen before we act instead of act and pray that God would bless. Paul was knocked off his horse. He had to pause. Paul was three days blind. He prayed. And then he was baptized and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then and only then could he proceed. He paused, he prayed, and then he proceeded. You know, you, you really need to sometimes question, you know, if, if you are so passionate for the Lord and, and it doesn't feel right to you and, and other Christians wince, you know, when you get in their face about all kinds of moral issues, you got to wonder, is that the spirit of God in you? Is, is that the way Christ would approach the situation? Or do you approach with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control? Because people don't care what you know if they don't know that you care and, and then you have a voice last night when I preached this message I, an older member of the congregation uh, came forward and, and she said I just want to affirm what you said pastor because I have a grandchild and, and based on her age I'm, I'm sure her grandchild is in her in his 20s or maybe 30 by now and uh, this grandchild has been an aggravation to me uh, I said well tell me more and she said well uh, he's listening to his college professors. He's listening to everything. He's reading all kinds of stuff that was against the Christian faith. And he used to constantly poke at me and aggravate me. And I, I would enter into arguments with him constantly, you know, uh, about, you know, what the Christian faith has to say. And, and it just so frustrated me. And I prayed for him, uh, wore out the, the knees, you know, praying for this kid. But he just seemed to be uh, constantly challenging the Christian faith. And and uh, two weeks ago, he came up to me and he said, Grandma, I want you to know I'm going back to church. She said, well, wow, what, what changed for you? And uh, he said, well, he goes, after Grandpa had his stroke, I've watched you for the last two years and how you've loved and cared for him. 
And that's the kind of person I want to be. And I know that you do what you do because you're a Christian person. And that's the kind of person I want to be. Like, wow. You know. She said, you know, it is true that, you know, how you carry your faith sometimes is more important than, than the faith that you carry. At least it gives you entree into a person's life where they're willing to listen to what you believe and what you have to say. Paul reflected on this whole matter at the conclusion of chapter 3 of Philippians. Would you stand and read it with me? Because this was the conclusion of the matter for Paul. As he thought about where he was and what he was doing versus who he became and what he began to do. He said together, One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. You know, I've made some mistakes in my life. I'm not kicking myself for the past. You know, the past might have even been necessary for me to become the present. You know, I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time worrying about that. I'm not going to spend a lot of time regretting that. You know, I'm going to press on. You know, today is a new day in my life. And I'm going to be the kind of person reflecting the kind of love, the kind of compassion that God has for people. That's the person I'm going to be. Not as zealous, legalistic, law-demanding Moral preaching Christian, because that comes after faith, not prior to faith. That's the kind of Christian I want to be. And Paul was that person from then on. You know, as I, as I think about acknowledging that you're on the wrong path, no one did that better than King David in the Old Testament. And uh, he was corrected a number of times by God's prophets who called him short and said, Paul, you're on the wrong path. And, or David, you're on the wrong path. And when he was corrected... Uh, he acknowledged his sin, and, and God came in and, and changed his heart. Created me a clean heart, O oh God. Renew a right spirit within me. And God did that. 